Sustain, the journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment. Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Monday, March 10th, 2008. I'm Patrick Sai at IATP in Minneapolis. Today on the program, Rod Leonard will be speaking about the shortcomings of FDA inspection on cattle ready for slaughter, and Jim Kleinschmidt examines alternatives to corn-based ethanol in the biofuel industry. But first, Mark Shapiro explains the push for more restrictions on consumer products due to their chemical content. A number of recent studies have found that each of us have various levels of toxic chemicals in our blood. That means all of us, including newborn babies. But how did they get there and what risk do they pose? Mark Shapiro has written about where these toxic chemicals come from, how they have entered our bloodstream, and what can be done about it in a new book titled Exposed, the Toxic Chemistry of Everyday Products and What's at Stake for American Power. We sat down with Mark to learn more. We've reached a point where basically uh, none of us are immune to chemicals, rich, poor, in between, American, European, people all over the world, Latin America. When people are studied for the chemical content of their blood, uh, scientists all over the world are finding toxic chemicals. Many of those are known to disrupt the development of the endocrine system, to disrupt the development of the reproductive system, to lead to uh, lower sperm counts, higher rates of infertility among young women, cancer and a whole array of public health problems. It's not, that, it's not to say that every single chemical in our body is harmful, and that is not the case. Uh, it's that certain of those chemicals are harmful, and for the most part in the United States are, are still permitted to be used, whereas uh, increasing parts of the world, they're being removed. And so how are we accumulating these chemicals? Uh, where are they coming from? How are they entering our bodies and our bloodstreams? Well, they entered in every way you could possibly imagine. They enter it in the food that we eat, in the cosmetics that uh, women, mostly women, uh, put on their bodies, in the toys that uh, the children play with, in the cars that use all sorts of synthetic materials, from the flame retardants that are coated onto electronics and other devices, from the uh, metals and, and, uh, and chemicals that are used in electronics, literally thousands of sources of chemical exposure. And what is increasingly clear around the world, unfortunately not here in the United States, is that many of these chemicals that are used have far less toxic alternatives. And that, I think, is the key point here. It's actually uh, applying a kind of a systematic look at how these products are made and finding far less toxic ways to make them. And uh, here in Minnesota, uh, there's kind of a move to try to push for greater regulations of certain chemicals at the state level. Is this possible? Can states actually take steps when we live in a global economy or a national economy and things are imported through states? I mean, what what would be the value for states taking action right now? Well, it's a very good question. As uh, the United States retreats from principles of environmental leadership, the rest of the world is not waiting for us anymore. They're moving ahead. And that uh, effort is largely being led by the European Union, which is now uh, uh, some 27 countries in Europe uh, uh, integrated into a single market, far larger than that of the United States. 
And what's happening, to get to your question about the states, is this kind of wildfire of initiatives that are happening in states all across the country who are beginning to uh, tire of the lack of action on the federal level and are looking to the model of what's happening in the European Union as an approach that could be used here uh, in the state. So they're literally jumping over the head of, uh, of Washington into Brussels, which is the capital of the EU. And uh, as a result, you have uh, many state initiatives when it comes to chemical reform that are kind of modeled on those of the European Union. When you're talking about removing phthalates, a potent endocrine disruptor from toys, for example, um, the Europeans have shown, after having banned it for some 10 years, almost 10 years, far less toxic alternatives can be found, and they have been found, and the European toy industry is doing just fine. And the same principle applies all across the board to many industries which are being required in Europe to remove chemicals. The economic catastrophe that they predicted never happened, and I looked into that in great detail, and it never happened. So the states, and states like this one in Minnesota and the state where I live in, uh, in California, are all beginning to see this model that, that environmental reform on this level and protection from environmental hazards can actually happen and can actually work in the end Number one, not have the negative economic impacts that industry often predicts. And number two, can have quite positive economic impacts as people become more and more aware of the, the possibility there is to obtain uh, far safer products. Thanks very much, Mark. Thank you. To read more about Mark Shapiro's book, Exposed, the Toxic Chemistry of Everyday Products, go to www.centerforinvestigativereporting.org. largest beef recall in the nation's history after a video by the Humane Society showed employees at a California meatpacking plant abusing cattle who were too sick to walk, a violation of federal food safety rules. Was this an isolated case or part of a larger systemic problem in the U.S. food safety system? To find out, we sat down with Rod Leonard, IETP board member and former USDA administrator for food safety under President Lyndon Johnson. A lot of people are having trouble understanding how a situation like this most recent one could happen when you actually had USDA inspectors around the facility. How could they have missed something so egregious as this? It's really a systemic problem. One of the essential aspects of deregulation is that the inspectors are not supposed to interfere with the operation of the meat plants. The problem for the department was and is that the inspectors really believe that they are there to serve the public and they, w they want to do their job in order to get the idea across to the inspectors that they aren't supposed to do their job. Uh, the department has followed over the last 10, 15 years fairly consistent policy of intimidation of, the, of inspectors. They also changed a lot of the instructions as to what inspectors could and could not do. If an inspector finds a problem, like the one that we're dealing with now, and they report it, then they're supposed to file the report in writing and justify the report to 
their supervisor into the regional office. It means that they're pulled off the line that is pulled off of their inspection program, and they've got to face a gauntlet of supervisors and, and uh, higher-ups to justify what they were hired to do, so that a lot of them learn very quickly that it's better not to create problems. And you pay for that, uh, like uh, the situation that we have now with uh, downer cattle. Downer cattle uh, are dairy cattle, mostly. When the department approved the use of uh, BGH, which is a hormone that raises uh, a cow's milk production capacity about uh, 20%, essentially what they're doing is injecting cattle with hormones. If you ever see a picture of a dairy cow in a, at an adult uh, stage, they're huge. Essentially, they're overweight so that their productive life is shortened so that they're brought in to, to slaughter because the last thing you do with a dairy cow is send them off to make hamburger out of them. And an overweight cow, a lot of them are going to have uh, problems with their ankles and, and legs and they can't stand up. And once a cow is unable to move, their whole system is being challenged by various kinds of ailments and, and uh, infections. The department knows all this. California is the largest milk-producing state in the United States, and they've got these massive farms of uh, 1,500, 2,500 dairy cattle. And when they're also injected with the hormone, you're getting a lot more cattle going off to slaughter. They know that they're going to have problems like this. They didn't know about this situation because they've had the practice of intimidating inspectors, and they don't know about this situation because even though they know the problem with downers, they don't have any special procedures to enhance surveillance and, and inspection of downer cattle. What do you think the next administration should do to try to address these problems? First of all, they've got to go back to inspecting. There are, I don't know, 6,000 inspectors. When I was running these programs back in the 60s, we had um, almost 15,000 inspectors. There are too few inspectors for the slaughter operations that are going on. So the first step is to um, go back to inspecting, which means a reversing deregulation. They did the deregulation through a program they call HACCP, H-A-C-C-P. The first thing they have to do is to cancel HACCP, and secondly, to adopt a program to increase uh, the personnel that are doing the inspection. The problem on food safety is, is out in the field. And if you don't have a staff of well-trained inspectors who really believe in the job of, of food safety, you're never going to know what the problem is because the inspector basically is the agent that represents the public in the processing of meat and poultry. Thanks very much. You're welcome. To learn more about the problems with the U.S. food safety system, go to www.iatp.org.
Plant-based ethanol in the United States has received a lot of criticism lately, particularly from an environmental perspective. But should we toss the biofuel baby out with the bathwater? Can we produce biofuels sustainably? To learn more, we talk with Jim Kleinschmidt, Director of Rural Communities Program at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. The real concern that people have been having is that as we have increasing demand for corn-based ethanol, that we're, we're growing corn on more and more acres. And that means both you know, the same acres, where we used to grow corn and soybeans in a rotation, but I think more importantly, it's starting to take some of the grasslands, the hay ground, the pastures, and then the conservation reserve program lands, which we know are sensitive and probably shouldn't be used to produce such an annual crop. So what are some of the alternatives or more sustainable approaches that are being discussed out there? Well, I think everyone's starting to look at how we go beyond corn ethanol to the next stage, to the next generation of ethanol. And when they say next generation, we're usually talking about not the starch or grains or oilseed crops we've been using today to make biofuels, but really going towards biomass, um, going to crop residues and going to energy crops such as prairie grasses as our source for making ethanol. And that would get us out of a lot of these questions because we're not going to have the same fertilizer needs or chemical use. And a lot of these crops can be grown in a more environmentally sustainable way. We just don't know as much about how to grow these crops in, on a large scale. Our universities have been spending a lot of their research dollars on increasing corn yields, figuring out how to grow it in different climates and drought and all of these things. We haven't spent any time barely figuring out how to make native grasses more productive or figuring out how best to grow them in a commercial way. So I think that's one of the big ones. We don't even know if we have enough seed, but then you have all the way, the, the rest of it. You have from the field to the factory. How do we actually harvest this stuff in a good way, transport it, store it, and process it to turn it into ethanol? We know how to grow it to a certain extent in small scale, and we certainly know from laboratory and demonstrations how to turn it into ethanol. But that in-between is really the question at this point. So what do you think needs to happen from a policy standpoint to kind of get this market moving and, and uh, get farmers in the field to start growing uh, these crops? Well, one other obstacle that I, I didn't mention, but it's probably the biggest one, is economics. Right now, farmers are able, for the first time in a long time, to be able to really make money growing commodity crops. So if we want them to tra change out their corn for switchgrass, we have to make sure that there's policy support to get them there. We've had long-term policy support for commodity crop production in the Farm Bill. Now we're looking at how, how can we give risk mitigation for farmers to try these new crops that we all want for the public benefits they provide. And so one way to do it would be through a program in, that's been introduced in Minnesota called RIM Clean Energy. Uh, RIM is Reinvest in Minnesota, a program that was established to help protect some of our most marginal farmland. RIM Clean Energy is a new program for working lands where farmers can will get paid up front to grow perennial grasses for energy production. And what we get in return as taxpayers is that these crops will be grown in ways that promote better water quality, carbon sequestration, and wildlife habitat. So farmers will get money from the biomass market. They'll still be able to sell their grasses to market, and the biomass market will pay for that part but we'll pay as taxpayers for the environmental benefits we get from the land. And so this to us is one of the best ways to start making this transition to the next generation of biofuels. To learn more about sustainable biofuels, go to iatp.org.
Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. The music on today's program is Tall Fiddler by Deo, Ophelia's Song by Pan, and Someone Turning by Arctic. I'm Patrick Sai. Thanks for listening. <laughs>